scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. We're going to be in this passage for a number of weeks in the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11, 1 to 4. Hear then the word of our Lord. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let us pray. Our Father, as we turn now to Your Word, we do ask that You would guide us. We thank You, Father, that You have instructed us how to pray. We thank You, O Lord, that we are not as the other religions who don't know their God, don't know how to talk to them, have never given the privilege of coming into the throne room. But Father, You have given it to us. And so instruct and teach us now tonight, O God, that we would better understand how we ought to pray and the privilege we have in doing so. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I suspect that you have prayed the Lord's Prayer many times. We use it every Sunday here. And many other churches do as well. When you do pray, what do you think about when you pray, Father? Does that ring any bells? Turn on any lights? Or has it just become sort of rote? The Lord's Prayer is a beautiful summary of the areas we ought to cover in prayer. There are two main sections. The first section deals with our vertical relationship with God. Father means we address our intimate or addresses our intimate relationship with God as our Redeemer. Hallowed be your name distinguishes God from us as holy. He's not just, if I dare say so, he's not the man upstairs. Uh, there's just some phrases that I that really kind of gripe me uh, when I hear that impersonal way to refer to Him. We pray, Your kingdom come. It focuses or identifies what should be our focus, the focus in our lives. We ought to be focused on His kingdom what's, and uh, His glory. And then it goes to the second part the, where it addresses the horizontal concerns. Addressing our spiritual and physical needs. Now, most likely, Jesus gave this prayer to, as it says here, to teach His disciples how to pray. We say that because the version that we have in Luke is a little different than the version that we have in Matthew 6. Matthew says, Our Father who is in heaven. Luke simply says, Father. Luke's version doesn't contain the phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
nor does it include the phrase, but deliver us from evil. And it excludes the last petition that we find in Matthew, at least in some translations. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that particular phrase, that last phrase, there's a high probability that that was inserted somewhere after Matthew wrote his gospel. That it was not a part of the original. And that's why if you have a New International Version or an English Standard Version, for example, you don't have that phrase uh, in your translation. Now, we often use the Lord's Prayer by repeating it, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But again, the fact that Matthew and Luke record slightly different versions implies that it was taught several times in, in different locations. And it was a means to, uh, it's, it's to be a pattern that we follow. And then we sort of expand on each segment uh, in our, as we pray it. Verse 1 begins, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after He had finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught His disciples. In that day, various teachers would teach their followers how to pray. And you could even tell who someone's mentor was simply by how they prayed. And you see that today in different things. I mean... Many times, if, if you're familiar with a particular field, you can tell who someone studied under by how they approach their subject topic. And so the disciples requested, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. But the question we want to look at tonight is, what do you think about when you say, Father? when you begin the Lord's Prayer. And first, we note that we're called to pray in communion with the Father. We're called to pray in communion with the Father. Verse 2, And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father. Now that opening statement just sort of explodes onto the scene. It doesn't communicate as dramatically to you and me, because we're so used to praying, Father, our Father, my Father. But that was radical in Christ's day. No one ever addressed God in such a personal manner. In the Old Testament, God is called Father, but it was always in a less personal way. It was never my Father. You never had that. In Isaiah 64, 8, for example, it says, You are our Father. We are the clay. More of a generalized form of address. In Matthew 2.10, I'm sorry, Malachi 2.10, Do we not all have one Father? So our Father was okay, but no one ever prayed, My Father. In fact, God is only referred to as Father. How many times would you guess? You don't have to speak out, but just take a guess in your own mind. How many times do you think God's referred to as Father in the Old Testament? Would you believe 14 times? 
That's not even once per book. That's not even once every other book. Only 14 times in the whole Old Testament. Jesus referred to Father over 60 times in just the Gospels alone. The Jews would never repeat God's covenant name. Yahweh, for example. Now, we talk about that. But what the Jews did, they wouldn't say it, and so they, they eliminated the vowels. And they only used the four consonants. And so after a while, they actually forgot how to pronounce it. And so when they, uh, later on, when they wanted to pronounce it, what they did was they took the vowels for the Hebrew word Adonai and they put it to the four consonants and that gives us our word Jehovah. So it was very, uh, there was, a, there was a, a distance, a certain distance. But in all his prayers, Jesus addresses God as my Father. And that was a revolutionary statement. And in doing that, it invites you and me to come to God in, a, in personal communion with Him as a loving Father. There's an intimacy there that the Old Testament simply did not know. And so the Lord's Prayer invites us to communion with God. Our Father. Second, we're called to prayer through the compassion of the Father. His compassion draws us to pray to Him. Now, maybe you grew up with an abusive father, and you find yourself saying, you know, Pastor, Father to me does not paint a nice picture. I don't have glorious thoughts. I don't have good memories when I hear the word Father. But the amazing thing is that we intuitively know that an abusive father is not a good father. That that's wrong. That there's, not, there's something not right about that. We, we have this, uh, the, the very creation, our very creation, the relationship that we began with in the garden of Adam and Eve worshiping and fellowshipping with their father continues on even in our fallen state. And we have that thought that an abusive father is not a good father. That is, that is wrong. Now, maybe they were good in other ways. I don't, I don't want to go, go there. But that picture we know is wrong. And you might even say, you know what, I read through the Old Testament and it seems to me that God is a harsh God in the Old Testament. And we hear that many times. But I want to challenge you, if, if that's your thought, to read through it and note how God dealt with His child, with Israel. How did He provide for, protect, and repeatedly forgive them? He was a patient God. For over 1,400 years, 
from the time of Abraham to the fall of the southern kingdom in, in 586 B.C., God was patient. God pled with them. Read through the book of Judges. And you see a pattern in the book of Judges. And see how many times they abused His blessings by turning to false gods in the good times. The pattern is very simple. They would rebel against God. God would send a nation to, to overrun them. They would cry out to God for help. They would repent. God would bless them. And then, just as soon as things started going well again, guess what they did? Right. You say, well, yeah, that pattern sounds a little familiar. How about you kids? That sounds familiar? Things are going well at home, and you think, well, okay, maybe I can push mom and dad a little bit. You know, I'll push the envelope. Maybe I can get away with this. And what happens? Ooh. <laughs> I see some smiles. That's right. It gets a little rough to sit down for a little while, but then you can sit down and it doesn't hurt anymore. Or, or that corner, you forget what the corner looked like or whatever. And everything seems back to normal. And what are you doing again? Well, you feel your oats, as they say, right? You start to push the envelope. See what you can get away with again. That's part of growing up, isn't it? That's part of maturing. And for us parents, that's why the Scripture says, train up your child, not tell them. We can tell them. That doesn't mean training up. Training up means to coach, to instruct. Well, in the book of Judges, we go through this cycle again and again and again. In fact, that cycle repeats itself 11 times in about... 325 years. So about once every 30 years, Israel headed out into the spiritual desert. God disciplined them, brought them back. God was patient. He continued to return. Later, Israel continued their rebellion. They killed the prophets. They turned to worship Moloch. Moloch was an awful god. It involved the sacrificing of children. God had established His covenant with Israel, with Abraham. He said, I will be a God to you what, and your seed and your children. And here Israel, they not only broke the covenant by worshiping another God, but they took the very blessing, the seed of the fruit of the womb, and they offered it to their false gods. That worshiping of other gods is called spiritual idolatry. And it got so bad that in Jeremiah 3, 8-13, God said to the prophet Jeremiah, And I saw that for all the adulteries and faithless Israel of faithless Israel, that's the northern kingdom, remember they split. Israel was in the north, Judah's in the south. I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah, the southern kingdom, did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. And so God's saying, the northern kingdom, they rebelled. 
I disciplined them. I divorced her. I was no longer called her God. Do you think southern kingdom of Judah looked at that and said, Wow, man, we better toe the line. I mean, look what happened to the northern kingdom. God says, no, they didn't do that. They went on sacrificing their children to Moloch. They went on killing the priests or the prophets that God had sent. And yet, listen to what God, the Father of Israel, said. Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God. That's the patience of God, the Father, the God of the Old Testament, calling faithless Israel back, saying simply, all I'm asking you to do is repent. I will accept you. I'm a gracious God. And so we see that, that picture of God and the Father in the Old Testament as the harsh, angry God simply does not fly. It does not fit the truth. But He calls on them saying, Return, I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious. That is the biblical model of a father. And this is our Heavenly Father to whom you and I pray. And if you're sitting here, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, you know, preacher, that's easy for you to say. You're a preacher. Uh, this is a side note. I'm not quite sure where this idea came from that once they ordain you, you know, sin is taken away. And you don't have to wrestle with that stuff anymore. And you, you, you now live in this glass bubble uh, of unreality. Well, that's not true. Ask of those of us who are pastors. And not all of us were raised in, in Christian homes. But you might say, you know, you don't know what I've done. God could never love me. Maybe you're even a Christian. But you have a rough past. Or maybe you sinned after you became a Christian in some grievous way. And that, that thought in the back of your mind sort of sits there. Like the ghosts of Christmas past waiting to rattle its chains when you try to sleep at night. And it's sort of gnaws at you. Gnaws at you. And whenever you think, well, you know, I, I ought to, I've been forgiven. I, I ought to have peace in the Lord. But, and that big but lurches into your thinking. But listen, listen carefully. My sin alone, apart from yours, or your sin alone, I don't care what your back all you had to do is be born or conceived. Each one of our sin, or each one of us, our sin alone was sufficient 
to send Jesus Christ to the cross. It didn't take the accumulation of all our sin put together. If you were the only person that was ever born into a fallen world, Christ still would have had to go to the cross to redeem you. Even if you lived a basically what we would call a good, moral, upright life. So whether it's drugs or sex or anger or pornography, impatience, unkindness, no matter what it is. Psalm 85.6 In Psalm 85.6, David cries out, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Again, in Jeremiah 3, God said to Israel, as He says to you and me, Return. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious. I will not be angry forever, only acknowledge your iniquity. Only acknowledge your iniquity. If you're weary and heavy laden, Jesus says, come unto me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Kids, do you ever do something that in your mind is so bad that you're not sure you can go to God and ask His forgiveness? Or let me ask it this way. Do you ever do something that is so bad that when mom or dad walk into the room, you run and hide out of fear of what they might do. Now, they discipline you, don't they? They should. And God says that's an act of love to help you to learn and grow. But you know our Heavenly Father is the same. He may discipline us, but it's never the discipline of an angry, uh, uh, revengeful God. It's always that discipline of a loving Heavenly Father who works with us, who wants us to come unto Himself. And He calls us. So the Lord's Prayer calls us to prayer through the compassion of our Father. And third, we're called to pray with confidence to the Father. With confidence. If you say, but, but you don't realize what I've done. No, I, I might not. But if you think that somehow you first have to clean your life up to come to God, then you don't understand grace. I have to constantly check myself on that I remember I was in a situation and I was hoping for God's blessing and I was starting to worry. And I remember thinking, my, my view was kind of, and I still struggle with this, but my view was kind of, okay, I'm going to claim a promise of God. So I'd claim the promise of God. Think about it. Think of it like writing it on the blackboard. And then I'd claim that promise and then my next thought would be something like, uh, well, yeah, but... Man, 
I didn't have devotions like I should have, uh, as often as I should have this week. So I take out an eraser and I erase part of a promise. Then I think a little more. Well, I, I, I spoke impatiently to uh, Sue the other day. Uh, erase a little more of the promise. Well, by the time I started, rem- I kept remembering things. By the time it wasn't too long till I had the whole promise erased. And it struck me that I had been preaching salvation by grace all my ministry, but I was living in many ways by salvation by works. You see, when we say, yeah, but I can't expect God to hear that prayer. I can't expect God to answer that promise in my life because of what I've done. Well, that's not grace, that's works. And we need to realize that we can come to God with confidence. Jesus sets the tone. We don't come in fear, we come in faith. Listen to the contrast that we have in Roman or Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. It sets this contrast up between the old covenant made with Moses and the new covenant made with Jesus. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and to the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. That's the old under the Old Covenant. Now listen to what happens when we come to Christ. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. God responds to us with the compassion of a father, not the condemnation of a judge as he looks at our sin. Romans 8.1 Pastor Wagner quoted this morning in doing communion. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there's not quite as much. It doesn't say, well, there's some, but then we get beyond that. It says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That invites us to come to the Father with confidence. Paul went on, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. See, Christianity differs from every other religion in the world. It is unique. And it differs in this way. 
We don't cut ourselves. We don't crawl until we bleed. I remember hearing, I, I forget the context, but two stories of two Hindus. One, to show his devotion to God, made a fist. And he kept that fist clenched for years. It was kind of gross. Guess what happened to those fingernails? Yeah. They grew out the back of his hand. As his way of showing his devotion to God. Another man was going to their holy mountain. And he would fall on the ground. And then he would crawl and put his feet where his head was. Fall on the ground again. Crawl and put his feet where his head was. So he, was, he would make his height every time he fell. I think it was, was it Martin Luther who crawled the steps in Rome on his knees? And he bled. You see, we don't have to do that. Because God sent His Son who bled in our place. Who suffered in our place. So we don't do penance. We praise God for the blessings He gives us and what He has done in our lives. Larger Catechism 189 says that we can, quote, draw near to God with the confidence, or he says, draw near to God with the confidence of His heavenly Father, or His fatherly goodness as one who has our best interest in mind. We pray with confidence. And when we pray, Father, that sets the whole tone of our prayers. Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father. And my prayer for you is that you can pray, Father. And do so with a growing understanding of the communion and compassion and confidence that Jesus implied when He said that. Now, if you can't pray to God as your Father, if you're here this evening, and you say, you know what, I've never prayed that way. I don't have the confidence to pray that way uh, for whatever reason. Then again, hear the invitation that God gives through Jeremiah in the third chapter. God says, I am gracious. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity. And as we do that in Christ, we receive that forgiveness. That forgiveness is full and is complete. And He invites us to come on that basis and we become part of His family so that we can forever after that pray, Father. May God help you and me to understand the tone that Jesus sets, the context that He sets when He instructs us to pray, Father. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You, O God, that we don't come to You as a distant God. We don't come to You, Lord, as one who we don't know. We don't come to You with that fear that You might not welcome us in. O God, we come to You as one who loved us enough to send Your own Son one who has adopted us into Your family. 
We thank and praise You for that. Teach us, O oh God, every day a little more what it means to come before You as Your child who is greatly loved. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.